an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, the Neptune Theater in Seattle's U District is celebrating 100 years of movies and music. It's so neat to stand outside and watch a thousand people coming out of there versus 12 or 15. And then, from the archives, the mystery man who directed Seattle's founders to Puget Sound. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Every Friday morning, our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us for All Over the Map, which is a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, he brings us the twisted tale of a brand new book for kids all about Seattle, which is being recalled by the publisher after being fact-checked by a certain radio station's resident historian. (laughs) Well, Felix. Hey, you, hey, good morning, Dave. You know, like you, I get books in the mail at Cairo from publishers interested in some kind of promotional assistance. Mm-hmm. I stopped in last week and grabbed my mail and found a new book called Super Cities Seattle, The Space Needle, Pike Place, A Salmon Ladder, and More. It said it was all about history, people, and culture. Author's a guy named James uh, Buckley, Jr. That's from a big publisher in Charleston, South Carolina called Arcadia. You might know their uh, Images of America series, very popular, lots of photos and texts about local uh, locations all mm-hmm. over the country. So I got home and cracked it open and started having a look. You know, it's very sweet. It's colorful. There's lots of photos. It looked like something my late mother-in-law would have bought for my daughter 15 years ago. But then I started reading it, and I found a mistake. It said, essentially, Boeing is considered to be from Seattle, even though its planes are built in Tacoma. What? I'm sure they meant Everett or Renton, right? And there probably should be some kind of a South Carolina wisecrack here, but I don't have one prepared. Now, I read it some more, and I found more mistakes. In the section about sports, it said the Seahawks joined the NFL in 1977. You know, anyone like me who was eight years old living in Kirkland when it happened knows the Seahawks debuted in 1976. It said the Space Needle opened in 1961. It what? was 1962. I know, it was crazy. And then it said Seattle founder Arthur Denny sailed north up Puget Sound. He actually sailed south into Puget Sound from the Strait of Juan de Fuca 170 years ago tomorrow, by the way. Mm-hmm. Now, you'd tell me if I was being pedantic, wouldn't you, Dave? Yeah, I, uh, I would, well... I might not, actually. <laughs> well, I'm always I pedantic. Just out of fear, but go ahead. De- degrees of pedan- pedanticness. All right. So those errors are bad enough, but here's the one that made my head explode. I'll quote it. The Evergreen Floating Bridge is the longest one of these in the world. It stretches 15,580 feet between Bellevue and Kirkland. No. No. So That's it's bad. The, everything's wrong. The name, the length, and the uh, endpoints. So the story has a happy ending, though, okay? I reached out that same evening I found those errors to Megan Petrie. She's a publicist for Arcadia who had sent me the book in the first place. She responded the next day and thanked me and said she would get back. Took a few days and a few more emails, but I got this note yesterday, and here's what she said. We stopped shipping the books as soon as you brought the problem to our attention, and we'll be reprinting the entire stock. Wow. We've been working working tirelessly this week to arrange for a reprint of the book. We take local history very seriously and believe in creating a quality product that enriches the bond between children and their communities. She thanked me again and said, we love local and we're glad you do too. And that's Megan Petrie at Arcadia Publishing. So kudos to Arcadia for taking the error seriously and, in my opinion, doing the right thing about Super City Seattle. Uh, good for Arcadia. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Serving greater Seattle. Since it's Wednesday, it's time to slip through the wormhole with our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, and go back, back, back in time 
Today we go to the Neptune Theater in the University District, which is a living time capsule. It's celebrating its 100th birthday next week, making it one of Seattle's oldest continuously operated theaters. And Felix went in search of Neptune history, including some ghostly rumors on a behind-the-screen tour. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington, Windows, and Doors. So even this theater is haunted? Well, we'll get to that, Dave. I'm, I'm, that's, that's a tease. So the Neptune kicked things off about 100 years ago, November 16, 1921, with a film called Serenade. Start George Walsh and Marion Cooper and was, descri- was described as a romance of old Spain. It was directed by Raul Walsh. That's George's brother and Miriam's husband. It was a family affair, apparently. So in 1921, films were silent, so the Neptune had a pipe organ and a live organist playing along. Talkies came along about a decade later, and that was really the Neptune's bread and butter for most of the next 80 years. It was a neighborhood movie house in Hollywood's pre-TV heyday, later a place to see Rocky Horror Picture Show, and lots of foreign and indie films when it was operated for years by a company called Landmark. Now, that all changed in 2011 when the nonprofit Seattle Theater Group took over. They're the same people who operate the Paramount and the Moor. They converted the movie house into a venue mostly for live music, but for comedy, and they can still show films. But they took out most of the seats, and they put in a new sound system. Dan Reinhars is manager of the Neptune for Seattle Theater Group. He was also tour guide a few days ago as we hunted for history in the century-old theater. As we walk around the theater, we can look up in the grid from where the organ pipes were, um, from when it was a silent movie theater. Um, and you can see like little sand dollars and things that you'll, you would absolutely miss if you just came in the venue to see a show when the lights are off. Um, but when the lights come on in this venue, there's, uh, it uncovers just a lot of secret little hidden, hidden gems all over the place, which is very cool. Yeah, so it has this nautical theme from King Neptune. And one of the not-so-hidden gems are the brilliantly colored decorative windows in the main auditorium featuring nautical themes like mermaids and actually King Neptune. And it turns out those windows are not original to 1921, and they're not what I and a lot of people thought they were made of. This, what appears to be stained glass, um, actually is stained plastic, which according to Dale Trigulli is even more rare than stained glass. The best guess in the time period is the 60s, you know, just based on the graphic and the, the detail of it. Um, I mean, they're beautiful, and they're unique in the sense that, you know, everybody thinks they're stained glass, but they are not. You know, in the original interior underwent a few remodels over the years. There was a big one in 1935 and again in the 1940s when that pipe organ went away. But the Neptune is still standing, and that's pretty remarkable. This is at a time when so many of the old neighborhood theaters have been shut down because of changes in the film industry and all these at-home viewing options, along with a boom in real estate prices. Now, I mentioned Seattle Theater Group operates the Neptune, but they don't actually own it. That's actually probably one of the most interesting things, I think, about the theater is that it's been the same family um, who's owned it since before it was a theater. They literally owned the dirt, and they, uh, they moved the house that was on it to build this building, which isn't just the theater. It's also next door. There's, there's residential, and there's commercial, and there's ground floor retail. Um, so that was a big, you know, it was a huge undertaking for the, for the family. And Craig Thompson of San Diego is one of the fourth-generation owners of the Neptune Theater. My grandparents and great-grandparents built the building. The great-grandparents' homestead was on the property, and they removed their house in about uh, 1918 or so and trucked it down Brooklyn, loaded on a barge, and moved it to Three Tree Point down by the airport. And that was their beach house. Wow. And apparently, yeah, apparently the beach house isn't there anymore. That would be cool if that was still there. Yeah. Now, Craig says one of the family members 100 years ago, his mom's Uncle Roy, was a dentist. Everyone should have an Uncle Roy dentist. Um, but the second floor of the Neptune building was originally a dentist's office. There's also apartments and retail space, which is now a bookstore. 
Now, the family is ecstatic that Seattle Theater Group is their tenant, and Craig Thompson says they're welcome to stay there for as long as they want. He says that a decade ago, the movie-only days of the Neptune had gotten pretty tough. It was the dinosaur as a, when Landmark was there, it was, you know, a 1,000, 1,200-seat building that would have 12 and 15 people in to watch a movie. It was just, it was pathetic. And Seattle Theater took over, and I think they sold out, I believe it was four of the seven first shows they did there. It just is, it's so neat to stand outside and watch 1,000 people coming out of there versus 12 or 15. You know, and they were closed from March 2020 until July of this year. Um, but even with that closure, they've had about 1,600 events there with more than a million people in attendance. Now, on my secret tour the other day, I got to see a lot of cool places that aren't open to the public. Got to see the spooky basement in the projection room. Mm-hmm. That's built like a bunker because they used to lock the projectionists in there because of the dangers of that highly flammable nitrate film they used 100 years ago. And, of course, a story like this would not be complete without mentioning the rumors of the Neptune being haunted. Dan Reinhardt says people over the years have reported seeing spectral figures of old movie stars in the balcony and smelled ghostly cigarettes. He also heard a story not long ago when a new city meter reader needed access to the theater. And then I was strung around the building and I said, oh, do you want to go over to the bookstore now? He goes, no, we don't go there anymore. I asked why. He said 10 years ago, um, one of our readers was going down the stairs and the door slammed behind him and something pushed him and he broke his ankle. I don't know if he slipped he fell down the stairs and, you know, he came up with a ghost story to save face. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making any assumptions here. But, um, Has that person been invited to the centennial event? You know what? I wish I knew who he was because I would totally invite him and I would ask him for the whole story. <laughs> yeah. So they're, uh, they're collecting, uh, Seattle Theater Group's collecting Neptune memories from the general public and they have a big centennial celebration next Tuesday, November 16th. It's free. It's open to the public, but you have to make reservations. You can do that and share your memories at stgpresents.org. But uh, it is pretty cool that the Neptune is still standing and still in business as a theater. So happy 100th birthday, Neptune. And good for Seattle Theater Group. They have, they have done a real service to this town by keeping those theaters operating. I've, I told you about, um, I mean, years and years ago, I did a piece about the, uh, the Moore Theater and the Moore Hotel. Yeah. And that's you know a spooky ghost place. There too. Yeah, that's that empty you, swimming pool down in the basement right. of the moor with the uh, columns the, in the middle that people allegedly bang their heads on exactly. when they were swimming. That's yeah, that's where the that's cool where place the person died. Yep, and it's I, I don't know if it, I guess it's still there, right? I mean, nobody goes in there, so I assume it because I they took yep. me down there, and yeah, I don't want to go back there again. I got into a really creepy or crazy party there about 1987. In the pool area. I was walking down the alley and got invited into a party in the pool area. People were painting the well, walls and the columns. I, it was a much wilder time for me, Dave. That is tempting fate, my friend. That <laughs> is tempting fate. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, Seattle's founders never would have come to Puget Sound were it not for a mystery man in eastern Oregon. It's a hot and dusty August on the trail in eastern Oregon, 1851, when the Denny Party decided to hang a right and then head north and ultimately round up, ultimately wound up right here. But why? Why did they hang that right? Historian Felix Bunnell is here, brought to us by the King County Library System. 
Because there was a sign saying, Washington this away. Exactly. No, it's all this is in Arthur Denny's memoir published back in the 1880s. Arthur Denny was the leader of the Denny Party, those settlers who left Illinois and headed for the Willamette Valley in 1851, but who ultimately founded Seattle instead. So along the trail, Arthur Denny met a guy named Brock, no first name given, at a place called Burnt River. That's close to what's now Huntington, Oregon, along the Snake River near the Idaho border. What we know from Arthur Denny about Brock is that Brock lived in Oregon City, south of Portland. Brock was at Burnt River in the summer of 1851, expecting to meet friends coming from the east. They never showed up, but Brock stayed with the Dennys and traveled west with them as far as the Dalles. Now, Brock told Arthur Denny that all the good land in the Willamette Valley had already been claimed. You know, don't waste your time there, but there's still plenty of good land on Puget Sound. So in September of 1851, Arthur Denny was sick in bed. They actually did go to Portland before they went to Seattle. So Arthur Denny's laying there and sick in bed, and he sends his brother David up north to look out for land in Puget Sound. And, of course, the rest is history. The rest of the Denny's came up in November of 1851. For about 150 years, this was pretty much all anyone knew about Brock. He was a man of mystery, an Oregon Trail archetype, the Pacific Northwest enigma. But I got some help and did a little digging over the past few days, and it turns out that we know more about Brock than I thought we did. And we also connected a few dots. My first call was to Amy Platt at the Oregon Historical Society's Oregon Encyclopedia. Apart from trying to identify who Brock was, Amy Platt really wondered about his motivation. Why is he telling the Denny's to go north? I, I, I first thought he was being kind of sneaky about it. <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, there's no land in Oregon. You don't want to go there. Um, but by 51, most of the upper Willamette was settled and the, the land was claimed. There was quite a bit of land south still available, but he might not have known that. So we haven't determined Brock's motivation, but we might have identified who he is. Um, Amy's a great researcher. Right away, she tracked down two potential Brocks, both named George, one from Kentucky, one from Ohio. Then she also found that a historian named Cole Thrush had, in fact, already identified George Brock and mentioned this in a book um, called Native Seattle back in 2005. So I called Cole Thrush, who grew up in Auburn. He's now a history professor at UBC in Vancouver. I asked him, you know, is it silly to even wonder who Brock really was? He said yes and no. The Denny Party and the other people who came in those early years are part of much broader waves of migration and immigration. So a single figure like that doesn't kind of matter so much. And I think it tells us more about ourselves and our interest in finding that single moment where everything changes. And as a historian, you know, I struggle with that in my own writing too, where I'm always looking for those moments where things could have gone differently. Um, but it's important that we think about the bigger stories and not get too caught up on, you know, which George it was. So back at the Oregon Historical Society, Amy Platt tells me she's 70% sure that the George Brock from Ohio is our mystery man, the mystical midwife of metropolitan Seattle. I like to think that Seattle was conceived in eastern Oregon, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be standing here were it not for this man, Brock. Right. And what do we know about him based on the, what we've figured out the last couple of days? He was born in 1814 in Belmont County, Ohio, came to the Oregon country in 1843 with that first major wave of migration. So he's a very early settler before this was even American territory. Um, we also know he married a woman named Eunice Davis in 1857. He was in his early 40s. She was 17 or 18. They had three kids, and uh, he lived to be about 80 and died in 1894. Now, I also reached out to the community of Huntington, Oregon, to see if that meeting of Brock and Denny is commemorated in some way. The first person I got a hold of was Mayor Candy Howland. I've been here for 35 years, and I've never heard that story. <laughs> and I told the mayor I was trying to figure out exactly where Arthur Denny met George Brock, since Huntington didn't exist yet in 1851. She told me about a place a few miles outside of town called Farewell Bend, and this just might be the spot where history was made. The river ran, a Snake River went through there, and that is where all of the people that came from the east going west, they stopped there. It was like a trading post. 
and some of them would cross the Snake River at Old Ferry and go into Idaho side. Some would go on into Willamette Valley, and some would go uh, out towards Bend area. This is kind of where everybody kind of broke up, depending on what direction they went. And the reason it's called Farewell Bend is because that's where everybody said farewell to each other. Right. So it's always just been called Burnt River in Denny's memoir, but here it is. This is this place, this kind of crossroads of the West out there. So a lot has changed in Huntington since 1851, and the town is somewhat infamous these days as a place for people to drive over from Idaho to buy marijuana, <laughs> uh, much to the mayor's chagrin. But uh, as everyone knows, I'm always willing to share my crackpot ideas with anyone who will listen. So Mayor Candy Howland and the 400 residents of Huntington, all I can say is you're welcome. I hope with this story people realize that were it not for Huntington and Farewell Bend and that little part of the country that Seattle wouldn't exist. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I think that should, you should paint that on the sign outside of Huntington. Welcome Idahoans for your marijuana needs, but also the cradle of Seattle. Hey, that's a good idea. I'll have to bring that up to the council. <laughs> so uh, the mayor's a really good sport. Um, and there's, there's, so there's a lot we know about George Brock, but we think there's probably descendants still around. Uh-huh. I haven't seen a photograph of him yet, so the mystery's not solved. But this notion that these two guys bumped into each other randomly out in eastern Oregon and came up with the idea to put Seattle on Puget Sound wouldn't have happened otherwise. Well, everyone listening has an idea of what exactly happened in 1851. Uh, Felix has the guy to call. Yeah, if you're a descendant of George Brock, email me, fbunnell at cairoradio.com. Thank you, Felix. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at mynorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Yes, it's rainy. Seattle, baby, please can I come home?